Welcome, good morning, Lighthouse. Welcome, everybody. We're so glad to see you all here, and everybody at home, we're so glad to see all of you as well. If you want to join us and stand on this Palm Sunday as we celebrate the triumphal entry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we want to sing Hosanna to the King of Kings this morning. So join with us. Yes, you can clap in our church.
go, sing Hosanna. 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 Amen, amen. Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, amen. Amen. We're going to sing, bless the Lord, because worship his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul. Your holy name. Do that again. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing, sing like never before. Oh my soul. I worship your The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing the song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the the Lord of my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name.
Jesus, we worship you this day. All we want to do, Lord, today is sing about the greatness of our God. Here we go. The splendor of the King. Sing with me. He's clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light. And darkness tries to hide. Trembles at his voice. Trembles at his voice. And how great is our God. Tonight, here we go. From age to age, age to age, to stand time. And time is seen. Beginning and the end. Beginning and the end. The God. great our God is this day. Father, we've had tough weeks, many of us. 
We've been locked away for a long time, God, and, we, and you brought us through it, Lord. You brought us through one of the toughest times in our nation's histories. And for that, we are so, so grateful. We, many of us, know friends who, who got sick and got well. Many of us know friends who got sick and didn't, some of which are with you in heaven now. But we are grateful that we can sing of how the greatness of our God, that we can stand here and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because he will be the king triumphant. At the end of the days, when this is all over and nothing else can be said, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And for that, we are so grateful. May you touch our pastor this morning. May he speak your words. May our hearts be ready to receive, our feet ready to walk. And if there's anybody here in this room, Lord, who doesn't know you as personal Lord and Savior, God, I would ask this day be the day for them to return to you. I would pray, God, that they not leave this place. And if at home they need to make that decision, that they would let us know. Call Pastor Jeff, call Pastor Eric, call somebody and let us know. But God, I will say this to you, that Lighthouse Community Church declares how great is our God. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated. Amen. Let's see. Good morning. I'll just keep talking. Hello. There we go. Hey, good morning. And for those of you at home, hi. It's good to see you or not to be seen by you. Um, happy Palm Sunday. This, this kind of marks the beginning of our lead into Easter. For those of you who have been kind of observing Lent, a 40-day part of preparing your hearts for it, you've been starting that. But for some of us who have been distracted or our whole rhythms have been thrown off, let's make this the day that we kind of draw the line in the sand and say, I want to prepare my hearts so that this Easter doesn't just kind of fly by like so often they do. Um, and there's a couple of things that we have coming up that I want to let you know about it being Easter week. The first thing is that Easter wouldn't be Easter without Good Friday. And in fact, for me, I think the more important conversation that we have actually takes place on Good Friday. Easter's the celebration. Good Friday is when God was doing the work that ultimately saved us. And so I want to invite you to join us on Good Friday. We're going to have one service at 7 p.m. in here. You can either join us live in person or you can join us online. Um, I'm excited. There's, every year it feels like there's a new perspective that God affords me or, or Jeff on this kind of very, very important topic of God coming into our lives and rescuing us. And I can't wait to share with you an insight that he gave us when I was in Jerusalem with some of us two years ago. I get to, anyway, I'm not going to get into it. Good Friday. 7 p.m. It's an opportunity to invite somebody to come with you. And then we have Easter Sunday. Easter is one of those two days of the years that people in our sphere of influence are actually more open to saying, yeah, I'll come to church with an invitation. So I don't want you to miss this. Because last year was anticlimactic. This year, we get to finally be back together. So if there are people that God has placed in your sphere of influence that you've been interacting with, whether it's family members or people at work, or people in your neighborhood that don't already have a place to worship together. The goal here is not to try to grab people out of other sheep pastures, out of other churches, to get them to come here. The goal here is who are those individuals that are just going to be sitting at home, and it's going to be a day like any other day. Identify them in your life and invite them to join you either here in person or invite them to come over to your house and have breakfast and join us or invite them to join you by just watching online from the safety of their own home, okay? We are, because we recognize we're still in a season of COVID, we're going to have two services at 9 and 11, not because we anticipate packing them all out, but because we want to maintain six feet between the rows. We want to have some COVID-conscious Easter celebration, but we want to celebrate together, and we don't want to have to turn anybody away. 
Um, if you are vastly, like, you don't really care whether you come to the 9 or 11, I would encourage you to come to the 11, because my guess is the vast majority of guests will probably lean towards coming to the 9, and we want to make sure we have enough room. And also, we're going to have children's ministry across the street. I didn't say child care, because we're not just caring for the kids and babysitting them. We are really going to be leaning in and helping guide them into a celebration on Easter as well. So for those of you who have kids or grandkids, this would be a great opportunity to invite them to join you with that. Um, And with that, let's go ahead and dive in, because today, again, as I mentioned, is Palm Sunday. And that in itself is a special time because it's the day that we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem with throngs of people lining the streets shouting, Hosanna, save us, and lining the the roadway with their own cloaks or palm branches, which is where we get the term Palm Sunday. But here's the thing that I'm always reminded of year after year on Palm Sunday. Those same crowds that were shouting Hosanna We're in the crowd of people who just a few days later were shouting, crucify him. And something happens between Sunday and Friday that changes their perspective. And and as I've grappled with that, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's the expectations that the people lining the streets had of who Jesus was and what he was coming to do that ultimately caused this change of perspective because they expected something out of Jesus that was not true. They anticipated that Jesus was coming as their king. That was true, but the sort of king that he was coming at, that's where their perspective was flawed because they anticipated that Jesus would come into Jerusalem like one of the Maccabean revolutionaries, and he was going to come and he was going to clear out Herod's palace. That's what they thought. He was going to come with a sword in hand and conquer Rome, their enemy, so that Jerusalem and all of Israel could be reestablished as the preeminent nation in the world. And that was not the case because Rome was not the enemy that Jesus was coming to conquer. And when Jesus instead of going into Herod's palace, turned and went into the temple and cleared that out. When he began to look at their own misplaced worship, they started shouting, crucify him. Because they really didn't want him to mess with their lives. They wanted him to improve their lives. And so again, Palm Sunday is a reminder for us about how misplaced expectations that we carry into our relationship with Jesus can actually hinder us from embracing Jesus for who he is, can radically alter the way that we approach him and the posture of our heart. But I have a confession to make. Since it's Palm Sunday, we tend to focus on the same passages year after year after year. And eventually, like stones that have been thrown in the river and, and, and with the passage of you know, hearing it over and over, it begins to lose, lose its rough edges. It begins to become a little bit stale. And so there are times where I go, oh, I don't feel like telling the same story again, even from a different perspective. But here's the thing. It's not like the the men and women who were lining the streets into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday were the only people who carried mistaken expectations into into their relationship with Jesus. I mean, it happens all throughout Scripture. And since we've been journeying through the book of John, and we've just finished kind of looking at Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman in a Samaritan town, we find ourselves in a portion of scripture that would be easy to just kind of forget about and jump over. It's probably one we don't normally go to. And yet in it, we see people missing the heart of who Jesus really is and coming to him for the wrong reasons. And so today, we're going to have a Palm Sunday conversation, but it's not going to take place on the outskirts of Jerusalem on the Sunday before Passover. It is going to take place in Galilee, in Jesus' hometown, with Jesus' own family members and people who totally misunderstand who he is and what the signs about him are pointing towards. So go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 4. Just, just to kind of get a running start into this as you're turning to John chapter 4. The last three weeks, we have been sitting in the story of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman. And he intentionally led his disciples into Samaria, into a place they would normally have avoided like the plague, 
not just because he was trying to bring the, the gospel, the good news to Samaritans, but also to expose the prejudices that ran through the hearts of his own disciples, to expose them so that he could begin to remind them that the gospel is actually good news for everybody, not just Jews, which is also good news for most of us. Uh, and when the people encounter Jesus and spend time with him, their faith grows. And so he spends about two days in that Samaritan village with all the villagers, and many, many of them come to call Jesus Christ their Savior and their Lord. And so let's pick up the story now in verse 43. After two days, he left Galilee. And, and can we show, there's a map that we have just to kind of show the journey that Jesus took. It might be really hard to see, but you've got Jerusalem down on the bottom, right by that the big blue lake, which is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is kind of right to the left of that. And he went north, almost straight up into the Sumerian uh, region. And then from there, he traveled north to, Gal or to the Galilean region. This is where he was from. So up there, that little blue dot that you see, that's the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus kind of did the majority. That's where he called home. That was his home base. That's where he did most of his ministry. And this is, that's where this conversation is going to take place. So after two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for he had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. <sighs> Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And this was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so as Jesus leaves from the Samaritan region, and goes back into the Galilean region, John puts in a little, in my NIV translation, there's brackets around this inclusion in the story, where he reminds us of something that Jesus has said, namely, that a prophet has no honor in his own homeland or in his own village. The, the point he's making is that familiarity breeds contempt, right? He may have been you know, in Samaria, as the people interacted with him, there was something about being in his presence that caused these people to go, my goodness, this is the savior of the world, was the conclusion that those people made after being with him for just two days. But as he goes back into Galilee, what, what John is going to remind us of is, although the people are, give him a warm welcome, it's not going to be like what he experienced in Samaria. Because they can't help but see him as Joseph and Mary's son. They can't help but see him as nothing but the son of a carpenter. So although they'd seen him, some of them, turn water into wine at a, at a wedding there in Cana, although some of them had heard stories about him healing people, although many of them had been in the temple or been in Jerusalem when Jesus came in and cleared the temple, even though that was surprising, that did not ultimately lead them to conclude that Jesus was the Messiah that they've been waiting for. At most, he's some up-and-coming young upstart from, the, from their region who stood up to the Jewish leadership and didn't die for it. So that in and of itself is pretty amazing. I'm sure they patted him on the back, and then they went back to their regularly scheduled lives. 
Because, and Jesus understood this, he would never fully be able to break out of the box of familiarity that they had placed him in. Not like the warm reception that he had in Samaria. And as this is going on, we hear about a a man who is a leader, uh, you know, a kind of royal official, probably worked for King Herod, who was Rome's appointed ruler over the whole region in a a city called Capernaum. Can we throw the uh, slide up on the screen? This is just a map of where Jesus comes from. So at the very top, and this might be hard to see, but at the very top you have, again, the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum stands right at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And about 20 miles as the crow flies to the left is Cana. And Cana was the place where Jesus had gone to the wedding, turned the water into wine, his first kind of sign or miracle. And this, you know, royal official was in Capernaum. And here's the problem. He's got a son who's sick. And all of his effort, all of his connections, all of his financial resources cannot make his son better. So at that point, it doesn't matter what his position is. He is going to do what he can to protect his boy. So he jumps on his fastest horse and he takes off down that dirt road from Capernaum to Cana because he's heard that there's a guy there that's been doing things that most people don't have the ability to do. He's been doing miraculous things. And to this man, Jesus might be the solution to his problem. Because in a lot of ways, he's looking at Jesus as a faith healer. He's not looking at him as the Messiah, as we're going to see. Instead, he's looking at him as a potential faith healer who can possibly heal his son. And so everything else is out the window. He is, he is flying out there to Cana. Let's pick up the story there. In verse... Oh, let's start in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And listen to Jesus' response here. <laughs> unless, you see, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, does that response surprise you a little bit? It does me. Because my personal thinking is, Jesus, do you realize the opportunity here? I mean, you've got somebody who's connected to King Herod. You've got a, you know, somebody in the upper echelons of the political hoi polloi there in Galilee who's coming to you for help. Aren't you excited? But here's the thing that Jesus recognized. He recognized that this man was coming to him for the wrong reason. This man was seeking him out not because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but rather this man was simply seeking him for what he could do. Jesus does several signs or miracles. Sometimes those words get interchanged. But but Jesus doesn't seem to put a lot of emphasis on the signs. Jesus does not seem to want to do signs very often. In fact, he was very hesitant to even turn water into wine there in Cana the first time. My time has not yet come, Mom. It's not time for me to do this. Why? I think it's because Jesus recognized that signs can actually become a hindrance. Here's the thing about signs. Signs point to something, all right? A sign is never the end in and of itself. A sign is always there to point to something else. And what were the signs that Jesus doing pointing towards? Well, they were intended to point towards Jesus and help people to recognize there was something about him that they should take into consideration, namely that he was the Messiah. That was the point of the signs, to confirm who he was, to confirm that he had the authority to forgive sins, not simply heal somebody's body. But for a lot of people, this guy included, the sign became the end, not something pointing to Jesus. He was seeking Jesus for what he could do, not for Jesus himself. And in what ways do we do the same thing? I have to look at myself in this. 
In what ways do I look to Jesus with the wrong motive? I go looking for Jesus for what he can do in my life rather than for him himself. And when we do that, when we begin to look to Jesus solely for what he can do, when we begin to look at the miracles or the signs as the end in and of themselves, we turn Jesus into a cosmic vending machine that is simply waiting there to do our bidding as if we can somehow control him. And of course, vending machines require coins or, you know, something to be put in in order to get something out. So then we start thinking, well, how do I get what I want? Maybe it's I need to start going to church more. Or maybe I need to start praying at meals more. I keep forgetting to do that. Or maybe I need to put a little bit of money in, in, in the offering at the end of the day so that I can get what I want out of God. And in this way, we start seeking the gift and overlooking the giver. And so Jesus recognized that the signs themselves can be a problem because they can hinder us from proper worship. And so the signs, remember, are there to point to something beyond themselves. And we can ignore those signs at our own peril. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking this week about a time that I ignored a sign um, it was shortly after I graduated from high school, my buddy and I went down to Costa Rica on a backpacking trip. And I one day just decided to go walk about. So I took my, my day pack and I just started wandering along the hillsides in uh, Costa Rica. And as I was walking along the road, I was trying to get back to the hostel that we were staying at. And I was walking along this road and it came to a fence and then the road kind of jogged the other way, and I wanted to go this way because I could kind of see in the distance where I was headed. But there was a fence in the way, and there was a sign on the fence that in both Spanish and English said, danger, keep out. But it was in my way, and I was young, and I was dumb, and so I did what many of you probably wouldn't, and that was I disregarded the sign, I threw my day pack over, I climbed over, and I started just trudging along the field, thinking that the worst that could happen is I could get my boots a little bit muddy. And it wasn't until I was halfway across this pasture that I realized why the sign was there. It was to keep idiots like me from going into the bullpen. Because there, right off to the side that had been hidden by some trees, was a full-grown Costa Rican bull. And you realize in those kind of moments that three years of high school Spanish is not sufficient for being able to placate a Costa Rican bull. There's a reason why men don't live quite as long as women. But even in that, God is gracious. Because sometimes even prayers that should not, don't, don't, people who don't deserve to have their prayers answered still have their prayers answered. I certainly, I mean, he protected me in that moment. The bull seemed more interested in chewing on grass than he did in, in chasing me. And in the case of this Roman official, this guy who works for King Herod, who had pursued Jesus with a complete misunderstanding of who Jesus was. Remember, he wasn't coming to him because he thought he was the Lord and the author and creator of life. He was coming to Jesus because he thought he could heal his boy. He was a means to an end, and he was seeking the gift, not the giver. But even in that, we're going to see that Jesus' response to him is kind of amazing. We read in verse 49, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, that's pretty curt in English, but in the original Greek, it's even more abrupt. It is a command. This person is used to giving commands. Come, my child dies. And what we realize is that this guy is coming to Jesus as if he has the ability to command Jesus. And it shows that he really doesn't have a clue who he's talking to. Because he's not just talking to some faith healer who all you need to do is give a little bit of money and he'll do whatever you say. He is talking to the divine word through which God spoke the heavens and earth into existence and through whom he holds it all together. He's talking to the author of life who has willingly entered into our reality, taken on human flesh so that he can restore us back into relationship with God through the sacrifice of himself. That's what we're going to be celebrating this whole next week. That's who he's talking to. 
And if he knew who he was talking to, he would get down on his knees and worship Jesus, not try to command him. But the amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't respond with anger. Jesus doesn't tell this guy to go, you know, pound sand. Listen to Jesus' response in verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. He matches a command with a command. Come, my, ch- my child dies. Go, your child lives. The amazing thing in this is that Jesus actually gives the man what he is asking for, and I don't believe he's doing it because of this man's faith. Remember, this man doesn't have a clue who he's talking to. So because it's not out of this man's faith, he's doing it out of his own graciousness, out of his own heart. He is willing to heal this man's child, even though this guy doesn't have a clue, even though the guy is looking for him for the wrong reasons. He's seeking the gift, not the giver. Jesus is still gracious to him in that. And I think sometimes, even when we don't understand who God is, God graciously meets us in the midst of our misunderstanding and lovingly walks with us through it. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The amazing thing is the man took Jesus at his word and departed. So he he leaves. I don't think he leaves with this expectation that his son is healed. At most, this guy has a couple sparks of hope that have been kindled in his heart that he carries with him as he jumps back on his horse and he makes that 20-mile trek. It's going to take him more than a day to get home. He begins to make the trek home to go check on his boy, hoping with a desperate hope that something might have changed. Verse 51, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, well, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And then, not before, then he and his whole household believed. So this man's faith in Jesus didn't, he didn't carry that faith in. He went with a hope. But it wasn't until he saw that his son was healthy and that his son got healthy at the exact moment that Jesus said he would be healthy that his, those sparks of hope ignited and turned into a full-blown conflagration of faith. We're going to see some similar moments next week when we celebrate Easter in the hearts of the disciples themselves when their hope is rekindled. And then John closes this section with this reminder that this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So this kind of closes out this section. And, he, and John, ultimately, as he closes this section out, leaves us with a question that we need to grapple with as followers of Jesus Christ or as people who at least are exploring a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the question we need to explore ourselves. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? Who do you say he is? Who, why are you pursuing him? Why are you looking for him? Because of who he is or because of what he can do in your life? Because those two motivations are going to lead to very different postures towards him. Let's let's break these down just a little bit. Let's start with the same pursuit that this Roman official had, pursuing Jesus for what he can do. If that's the approach that we're taking in our relationship with Jesus, that we pursue him solely for what he can do, then what it does is it places us above Jesus in our mindset. We begin to think that this is me and Jesus, I am looking to you to serve my needs. So I, I need you, Jesus, to fix this problem that I've got. Come into my life, deal with that. But at any other point, just leave me alone. Let me kind of go on with my regularly scheduled life. I'm perfectly fine to be in control until I'm no longer in control, and at that moment I need you to kind of take the wheel, help me get out of it, then leave me the heck alone. And if you don't, if you don't answer my plea when I give it to you, then you are dead to me. By the way, 
that was exactly the kind of posture that the men and women lining the streets going into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday had. Ah, good! Here comes this person who can meet our needs. Here comes our conquering king who can go ahead and throw off that burdensome yoke of Rome and reestablish Israel, who can take care of our needs. And when he doesn't do that, when he begins to tinker with their own hearts and begins to point out that they have been worshiping or, or misplacing their worship, and approaching God in ways that were dis disobedient and disrespectful to God. Well, at that moment, he was literally dead to them. And that's when they started clamoring for his crucifixion. If we are seeking Jesus solely for what he can do for us, it inverts the relationship with God that all of Scripture intends for us to have. But if we pursue Jesus for who he is, just for who he is, it allows Jesus the rightful place of sitting on the throne of our hearts and it puts us into a more subservient position. Now we are looking to him and following his lead. And it really kind of harkens back to a, a line that we hear all throughout the Old Testament. It's over and over and over. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that doesn't mean that we need to be terrified of God. It simply means that we have a right perspective, a reverential respect for the fact that God is God and I am not. Therefore, he belongs in this position above me and I submit my will to him. So what he says goes. If he leads this way, I'm gonna go this way even if I don't understand it. If he says be still, I'm gonna be still even if I don't like it. If he says give me this, whatever this is, then I'm going to submit to it even if I don't understand it. We're going to see that on Good Friday. We're going to see somebody who has to grapple with that perspective on Good Friday. If he asks me to take everything that he has entrusted to me and offer it back to him, then I am willing to do it because when we begin to have a right perspective, we begin to order our lives around him rather than demanding that he order creation around us to suit our whims. And this truly is the beginning of wisdom because when we get this right perspective, the world and a following Jesus through this messed up, upside down world that says you deserve to have it your way begins to make more sense. So why are you pursuing Jesus? Who is he to you? Is he simply the sum total of what he can give you? Is he your cosmic vending machine that you, are, that you only come to when you have a need and then you ignore him the rest of the time? Or is he the Lord of your life? That is perhaps the most important question that we can grapple with. So I'm gonna leave it with you and with me. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to reorder our worship so that Jesus is the center rather than us being the center, that Jesus is on the throne rather than us on the throne of our hearts. Help us to place his kingdom above our own comfort. Help us to put what you want over our own desires. Jesus, we need you, not for what you can give us, but for who you really are. So Holy Spirit, help us to understand who Jesus really is. Help us to submit our lives to him and to pursue him for him, not for the miracles that we want him to do in our life. Would you expose in us today the expectations that we have been carrying into our relationship with him? Expose the things that could hinder us from properly worshiping him so that we can more accurately reflect his heart. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. This morning, if you just need to
thanks because our God, his love endures forever. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Let's sing praise and honor to him as we leave today. Take this home with you. Remember what we sing about this day so that we can sing it at home and we never forget. Here we go. Thanks to the Lord, our God and King, because his love endures forever. Above all things, His love endures forever.
So let's just sing that phrase so we remember at home this week. Gets dark, gets tough, gets ugly, gets whatever. This is the holiest week of ever, and his love endures forever. Here we go. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. couple of thoughts. It's so fun when, when we worship to kind of the way that the Holy Spirit just starts stirring stuff up. And I, th- I was thinking in that first song about that word Hosanna. It's one that we typically sing on this day because that was the cry on the lips of the men and women who were lining the road into Jerusalem. Hosanna! It's a Hebrew word that means save us. It was a cry of desperation. And the reality is Jesus had come to save them. Their problem was that they were looking at the wrong enemy. They were looking at the wrong thing that they were asking him to save him from. And I wonder how many of us right now are looking to God with despairing hearts saying, Hosanna, save me. And the reality is he has and is saving you, but you're looking at the wrong thing. Save me from COVID. Save me from depression. Save me from, from, from the frustration of being in a family where my kids don't do everything I want and my spouse doesn't appreciate me and yada, 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 right? Save me from my financial situation that I might have gotten myself in. But you're big enough, God. You got all the resources in the world, so save me. Or something like that, right? And what if, what if we are looking at the wrong things so that when those things When COVID claims the life of somebody we care about, when the cancer doesn't go away, when we get audited by the IRS, when your parents' marriage blows apart or a friendship disintegrates, he is still God in that moment. And he is still overcoming it. And I can assure you of this, and we're gonna, we are going to celebrate this on Easter Sunday, that regardless of the brokenness that you are called to tread through, that he leads you through, the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. And that is the hope that we have. Because he is and has and will save us. We need only keep our eyes on him, no matter how difficult the journey becomes. So may we continue to praise you, Jesus, even when our lives are difficult, even when it's raining when we want sun, even when our hearts ache. You are the hope that we cling to, and we worship you not for what you can give us, but for who you are. You are the rightful Lord of our lives. You have purchased us out of bondage. You have invited us back into relationship, restored us back to the purpose for which we were created. Help yourself to our lives. Everything we have is yours. So today, as we prepare to leave this room and go out and continue to be the church, Would you have your way in us? May you begin to reframe our perspectives with you on the throne of our hearts and us in the servant's position. And may we be willing to submit to your lead. 
even when we don't understand it, even when we don't like it. Everything we have is yours. Our hopes and our dreams, as well as our fears and our failures, it's yours. You use our stories, even the ugly parts, it's yours. Our families, as dysfunctional as they may be, and we're part of that dysfunction, we're yours. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. If you got prayer requests, we want to know them. You can email them in at pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. You can fill out the cards in the front, drop them in the back. If you want to give, you can do so at lighthousecommunity.com on our app, or you can give in the boxes in the back. We love you. I look forward to worshiping with you on Friday at 7 p.m. with our Good Friday service, Sunday at 9 or 11. Have a wonderful day, and don't come alone. Bring somebody with you. Take care.